Welcome to the Everyday Guru Podcast with your hosts, Jared and Tiffany. Each week we interview everyday gurus who are full of wisdom, love, and laughter. Hope-filled stories that need to be shared with the world. We love receiving feedback. Please share, leave a review, or best of all, a voice message. If you find value in our podcast, please consider supporting us for as little as 99 cents a month by visiting anchor.fm forward slash everyday guru forward slash support. Hey, everybody. This is Jared, the everyday guru I have with me, Tiffany. Hey, everybody. And Lisa Cohn. Hello, everyone. She is the author of The Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, as well as The Power of Thoughtful Leadership. She is a writer, teacher, and public speaker who owns a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm. So uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about your book. Could you? Yeah. So To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence. It is a memoir. And people say, what's it about? And I say, me. Uh, The way I describe my childhood is this. The best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding because my mom got married in July 1st, 1982 with 2,075 other couples in Madison Square Garden in New York City. And so I grew up in the Unification Church. The Mooney is a cult if you don't get the reference with the big, huge mass weddings. And on the other hand, the best cocaine I ever had was from my father's friend, the judge. And someone said to me, not really a judge, right? And I said, oh, yeah, seriously, a judge of a small town in New Jersey, right outside New York City. And so this, the, the memoir tells the story of my childhood before joining the church, the Unification Church, the cult, living in it, how and when and why I started to slowly try to pull myself out of it and how difficult that is. And then a bit of flash forward to the future where how I am okay, more than okay, surviving, thriving, and happy now. So that's basically the gist of it. Great. That's awesome. Can you you kind of expand a little bit? I was, when you mentioned um, you escaped the cult, what was it Mm -hmm. like kind of being in the cult? Because I'm sure a lot of people might be asking themselves like, what's that like? Or- Yeah, and how did you even get in it in the first place? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So my parents, I'll get into, I'll do the how I got into it and then what it's like. Uh, My parents met in high school. They went to separate high schools together, as we say, and quickly got pregnant with my brother, got married, had him at 19, me at 20. It was the 1960s. They split up by the time I was two or three. They were hippies. It was this crazy world with sex and drugs and Woodstock and encounter groups and primal screaming and all of that. And then uh, the summer between my second grade and third grade, my mom bought a van. We lived on the East Coast of New Jersey, and we were going to drive across country to California to move on to a commune. And instead, my grandmother got, her mom got diagnosed with cancer. So we moved, we drove across New Jersey and moved in with my grandparents. Uh, My grandmother passed. We stayed with my grandfather, who was also a judge. And we stayed with him, my mom taking care of things. And then in, in January of 1974, my mom's friend with whom she used to hitchhike across the country, across the country every summer, called her and said, you have to come here, Reverend, some young moon speak. And my mom went to hear him in January in Princeton, New Jersey, and came back inspired, enthralled. It's amazing. He's amazing. Jesus wasn't supposed to die. This is incredible. And it, it took a couple of months for anything really to happen. And then the summer, that summer in 74, my mom got invited up to Barrytown, New York, where the huge estate where they used to indoctrinate people. And she went up for the weekend and came back and went up for a week and came back and went up for another week and came back and basically spent the summer there. 
And mm. somewhere in the midst of that, she drove my older brother, Robbie, and myself up to Barrytown. And we get to the building and we go inside. We go to this huge gymnasium and all the women, all the sisters are sitting on the floor on the right side of the building. And all the men, all the brothers are sitting on the floor on the left side of the building. And within moments, Reverend Moon walks in with his interpreter and starts speaking. And from then on, I'm 10 years old. From then on, that's it. He's my Messiah. This is the truth. And we were members of the church. Um, and what is it like to be in a cult? Honestly, it's the best feeling ever. Really? <laughs> it is the most intoxicating drug ever to know you have the truth, to know you have the Messiah, to know as human beings, we crave certainty, purpose, and community. And even though a cult is dangerous and it's wrong and there's so many evils around it, right? And it really does mess one up, but it gives you absolute certainty, like you the most intoxicating feeling ever. You are certain and that's powerful. It gives you purpose. You know why you're here and what you're supposed to do. And it gives you community like you'll never have again. So when you look back, you I can see how harming it was and how painful it was and a lot of painful things happened. But it is also this feeling of I found the truth. The truth will set you free. You know, I'm doing, I'm living for God. It's a very intoxicating, again, powerful mm -hmm. Yeah, I always kind of found it fascinating, you know, the like I have like on Netflix and they have, you know, movies and documentaries about you know, mm -hmm. people get sucked in. One of the most famous ones is, um, oh, God, I can't think of the name. Fred Phelps. I'm sure you've heard of that. That mm -hmm. um, famous cult. And actually, they had a woman who got sucked into that. Um, the whole other family. It was like basically a family. But the I believe it was the sister got out of it. And she thought she would be really attacked really hard on Twitter. But actually, people were very compassionate and tried to help, you know, get her out and, you know, show her love and support. And how did you, how did you up getting out? Like, was it... Uh, the love and compassion of others that that people just can't keep well yes and so bottom line my mom joins we join within a few months my mom sits us down one day and says what should i i feel like i need to be there more what should i do and we say go leave you should leave us and so she does she leaves us with my grandfather who is on the verge of a breakdown basically and so we're um, like taking care of the house i'm 11 years old shopping cooking cleaning running the house and the my grandfather used to be a judge and so the police are doing a suicide circling the, the block on a suicide watch for him and eventually he's about to go to court and instead they put him into the psychiatric ward of the hospital and my brother and I get shuffled around for a number of weeks until my father Danny finds out what happened and comes and gets us and pulls us out and moves us into New York City to live with him and so that's when I start this you know split world of the cult on the weekends and the holidays and in my heart and in my mind and every being and living with my dad with his satanic lifestyle during the week and uh -huh. for, for, for you know through junior high school through high school and then what basically happens is um the summer between my junior and senior year of high school my dad sends me to music camp I'm convinced to this day that he sent me to get me away from the church because, again, I spent every moment that I could at a center following Moon, giving my life to it. So he sends me to music camp, and for the first time, I become friends with people who are knowingly at that point to me gay and or bisexual. Mm -hmm. And I adore my friends, and it's a wonderful community, and it's a huge sin in my puritanical church. And so I write my mom, and I say, what should I do? And she writes back, and she says, these people are evil and sinful. You can either like run away from them or convert them. Those are your two choices. And for the first time that doesn't, 
it, I don't, it doesn't, I, I don't, I don't agree with it. And you have to understand what, I mean, one of the things the cult does is it absolutely controls, it controls your behavior, the information you receive, your thinking and your emotions. And so we were literally taught that if you ever questioned anything, it was Satan trying to win you back from God. So as soon as you begin to question, you beat yourself or fast or pray for 21 minutes or take a cold shower or like, get out of me, Satan, get out of me, Satan. You like, you never let yourself think for yourself. And so this is the first time that I actually think, I don't know that I agree. And then I come home from camp. And so I'm not only Moody, but I'm actually best friends with Reverend Moon's, one of his children, one of his oldest daughters. And mm-hmm. um, I'm also good friends with these other kids who are born in the church. So Reverend Moon has these huge weddings they are called blessings and people are blessed in marriage. And when they're blessed in marriage, they are, their original sin is removed from them, from the fall of man. And so their children are born without original sin. So I happen to be good friends with Reverend Moon's daughter, a true, his true daughter, a true child and blessed children. Um, who are born to these blessed couples. And one of them, uh, we're about 16 at the time, and one of them is seduced by our Sunday school teacher and has an affair with him. And in order to keep everyone from noticing that, she starts to spread rumors about me. Basically saying wow. I'm sleep with all the, all the men, all the brothers wow. in the church. And so Moon hears this, believes this, and makes a decree that only blessed children, only these special children born of his blessed marriages can play with his children, the true children. I like to say basically the Messiah banishes me. So at this point, I already knew I was sinful and evil because it's so ingrained in you. And basically the Messiah agreed. So I I go back to high school, my senior year of high school. And it's a long story, but I go back to my senior year of high school and I say, okay, you joined the church when you were 10. You were a child. You couldn't actually make a decision. So now that you're 17, you need to pull back a little bit and see life on the outside so that you can make an adult decision to come back and never question again. And I pull back a little bit and I start hanging out more with my dad on the weekends or more with making more friends in my high school and hanging out more. And I find a life and more unconditional love than I had in the church where again, the Messiah banished me based on a lie. And then I start experimenting with alcohol and I get drunk at a party and I kiss a boy and then I have a boyfriend, which is the other huge sin because in my church, premarital sex, sex between Eve and Lucifer, the angel, and then Eve and Adam is the fall of man. So I have a boyfriend and everybody freaks out and all, all hell breaks loose and everyone's, you're going to fall, you're, you're going to die. And long story short, I go <laughs> off to college at the end of the summer, I go up to upstate New York to Cornell and my boyfriend stays in New York City and I'm determined I will break up with him, but I don't. And that's when I just slowly start my brother said I never left. I just slowly started drifting away. I, mm-hmm. I firmly knew that Moon was the Messiah at the time. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and and that, I, I can't explain the amount of shame and guilt and, and just the pain inside me because I knew I was letting God down. Uh, and so, long story short, my freshman year, I almost jumped off the bridge. My sophomore year, I... Wow. became anorexic my junior year that's when i did a hell of a lot of cocaine with the judge and others and then my senior mm-hmm. year i embarked on really destructive relationships to i'm sure to this day to punish myself for mm-hmm. having abandoned the messiah so that's how it happened oh well then he just basically just got further apart and into the point where it's pretty much no contact with him and you just basically moved on with your life so yes and i basically moved on with my life but i I, I was so, I was so functional on the outside that you couldn't tell, but I was so broken on the inside. And, and again, what happens is I end up 
uh, getting involved with a man who drinks a hell of a lot and it's me when he drinks and I end up getting engaged to him. And uh, before I actually go through with the marriage, my cousin sends me to Al-Anon, which is the 12-step program for people who have their arms around the alcoholic. And I walk into the room thinking, tell me if he's an alcoholic. There's no way I would ever be with an alcoholic. I'm way too smart for that. Hmm. All you people with this low self-esteem, I'm way so much better than that, you know, only to discover that, yes, my dad drinks some drugs every day of his life. My grandfather was an AA for five years. My grandmother was addicted to prescription drugs forever. There's a, oh, and I grew up in a cult. There's a myriad of reasons why I would end up with an alcoholic. And that's when like everything cracked open. And I was like, wow, it wasn't just weird. It was bad. And I am so Mm -hmm. broken. And that started my path to recovery. Yeah. Wow. They actually have too a um, a support group for people that are, um, you know, friends or relatives of alcoholics. I can't remember what it's called though, where they can. I don't know if they go. And I don't know how it works. I'm sorry, I've never been in an AA meeting, but you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah mean, Al-Anon is for the people who have friends or fa- friends of family who are of alcoholics. Yeah, A we like to say AA Alcoholics Anonymous is for the people who have their arms around the bottle. Okay. Cocaine Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, there's a lot of Anonymous, a lot of 12-step, yeah. and Al-Anon for people who have their arms around the people who are sick with the Gotcha, disease. yeah, and I, I just possibly can't keep track of them all, and I know, Absolutely. and I know there's, it's pretty much, uh, the, the message is kind of the same, it's like, you know, giving people a higher power, something to believe in, something to take away that, that scarring behavior, that bad behavior, yeah. and replace it with a good behavior, you know, yeah. something to yeah. look forward to, you know what I mean? Yep. So I think so. So it must have um, been um it must have been really hard to get away from that church with your mother still in it. It it yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is yeah. I mean, especially sort of when you're born in Norway, it's everyone you know, it's everyone you love, it's your parents, mm-hmm. your family. My brother was still in at the time too. And it also it, it pickles and carves your brain in such specific ways when your brain develops within these constraints that it is extremely difficult to, it is possible, but it's a daily process to like break mm-hmm. those patterns and pull away. And I will tell you, so that was 1981, two, three, and to this day, I can get triggered into deep guilt and shame for having left. Now I know it's not true. I know he's not the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But that was, it was so difficult to leave that there's still a part of me that hasn't completely let down that, oh my wow. God, I, I broke God's heart. What a huge weight to put on anybody. I broke God's heart. But that's mm-hmm. what we were taught. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the old saying, old habits die hard. And it's old habits really, die hard. And it's not really a habit. It's like a brainwashing. But it's yes. the only thing I can kind of draw a parallel to since I haven't been through it. I don't, I always tell people, I don't, I don't pretend to believe that I can possibly comprehend what you've been through. I can just kind of tell relatable stories and, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I always say that at this point, I say my story is unique. Only when my older brother has basically the same story with these two different crazy world but the themes are universal unfortunately so many of us walk around with too much shame and too much self-loathing and Mm -hmm. and childhood secrets that we think are our fault and all these crazy things we learned or we made up to survive that 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 just we don't need that just get in our way right oh absolutely and i think too um and i'm sure you've thought about back to this yourself is with uh covid now how important I'm sure your book is to a lot of people that have read it. I'm sure they probably find some relation to that. You know what I mean? I hope so. I, Cause man, when, when COVID eventually, hopefully some point 
ends, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have a lot of mental health cleaning up to do because the number of clients, friends, colleagues, family members, I have to remind or I have to get reminded by that this is really hard right now. Like, this is really hard. Mm -hmm. We're still in a national pandemic and we're all still terrified and we haven't, we don't have social contact and it's a hard time right now. It really is. Definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, and I'm reminded of that kind of every time I do a podcast, how lucky I am. We are, Mm -hmm. you know, that we have an outlet to get that social need met with a lot of people don't you know what i mean they're they're isolated and even that's still not the same as social contact you know what i mean yeah i'm going to be hugging a lot of people probably strangers when i come again i'm just going to be like can i give you a hug well i still hug my friends and family hey i'm guilty i'm sorry but you know um i do some right i do pod with some and hug some but yeah yeah i I clip every now and then but yeah it's yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's it's wearing on all of us, and uh, mm-hmm. I think it's, that's you know, what what would you say is the underlying message of your book? Does, do you have you come up with one or that? Yeah, so I, the messages I'm trying to spread there are three main messages. One is that extremist situations exist, especially now they're inc- they're incredibly prevalent. Unfortunately, they're in- entirely intoxicating and therefore extremely dangerous right there the that feeling of knowing that your way is right and everyone else is wrong is a powerful powerful thing and we are all susceptible to it the second is that for anyone who feels hopeless or damaged beyond repair there is hope and you're not damaged i have been at that feeling of hopelessness um i know it um i and i actually you know i've been at this this recovery and this healing and my life for decades and when the book came out I realized that I actually still thought I was damaged I'm not damaged I have damage I have scars things happened I have scars I have triggers whatever but I'm not damaged I'm not broken and that's an entirely different way to view life and to view oneself when you're stuck mm-hmm. in that yeah. and the third message is you know from my work as an executive coach and from my own life and from everything I truly know that as a species in general we're way too hard on ourselves and we're too perfectionistic and self-critical and self-judging we're just mean to ourselves oh and yeah we we're almost we're almost enemy right we need a huge dose of self-love and self-compassion right a hand on my heart like it's okay sweetheart like you're you're okay right we just need to love our, that's pretty much all i say in my in my work and in my life we just need to love ourselves more we just most of us just need to love ourselves a heck of a lot more absolutely i've also heard it's a crazy wild story and and, and the one that amazes me most is when people tell me that it's really well written and i'm like i am so self-taught yes frank mccourt was my teacher in high school but that was before he was famous and i never really paid attention in class but uh (laughs) (laughs) lucky that i was able to write the book but yeah Hey, you know, they was it somebody just said on uh, a podcast that we had what like one or two percent of people who run want to write a book actually do. So the fact that you wrote a book is something in yeah. itself, you know. Thank you. I wrote a book, got it published, and all of a sudden I was like, "Oh my god, I'm really naked to the world." Okay. <laughs> and it's funny too because it's like the way the world is, or maybe people are. Somebody I forgot who told me. Like I said, my I, I suffer from CRS like a lot of other people do. Somebody said that uh, you don't have that street cred until you write a book. So now you got your street cred, sister. (laughs) (laughs) So um, anyways, where can people find you at? Where can uh, people go look for you? Where where do you hide that at? 
so the book is available everywhere. And as I said to you early, it's obviously it's on Amazon. It's on Kindle Unlimited. I highly recommend you buy it from an independent bookstore because they need your help. And even better, a independent bookstore owned by a person of color, right? Because we need to support those small businesses now. But you can find me. So it, my name is Lisa and the last name is K-O-H-N. K as in Kite, O, H as in Harry, yeah, and as in Cone. Cone, right? And, but if you Google me, you'll find me because cults are hot. But my <laughs> website for writing is Lisa Cone Writes, L-I-S-A-K-O-H-N-W-R-I-T-E-S, lisaconewrites.com. All of my social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is at Lisa Cone Writes. And then my work website is chatsworthconsulting.com. And I, I, the best part of what I've done is when people reach out to me and tell me their stories and thank me for my story. And we meet in all sorts of different electronic ways in these days and age, although I do, I have become friends with people I met on Twitter. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. I love when people reach out and share their stories with me. So, so I can send you a tweet then. Yeah, send me a tweet. I did. I, I met someone on Twitter. I met two people on Twitter who live in Scotland, and I went I went to work with one of them to do a, a conference, a workshop on cults and surviving cults. And I was, like, going to stay with this person. Everyone's like, you're going to stay with someone you met on Twitter? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to stay with her. I met her on Twitter. I'm going to stay with her. And she's like, we're not going to kill you. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're not going to kill me. <laughs> but I think I'm okay. But, yeah, every, everyone's freaked. I'm too old, I guess, to just go stay with someone I met on Twitter. But I did. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I think, too, is like, you know, I think with all these ID shows, like I was telling Tiffany, <laughs> when we first met, we met on Match.com. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's another story about what her mom said about me. So, you know what I mean? Only, only men are killers, right? So yeah. uh, that's great. Well, it's good having you on, Lisa. Yeah, it was Thank great. Thank you for having me. It's nice to talk with both of you. Yeah. We'll, we'll follow up soon, I'm sure. Take care. Take care.